0: Welcome to the DJE Podcast, where you will learn about real estate investing from real life examples. Here's your host, Devin Elder. Okay, welcome to the show. Today, our guest is Brian Burke. He's president CEO, uh, President and CEO of Praxis Capital, Inc. They're a vertically integrated real estate private equity firm. Brian has acquired over half a billion dollars worth of real estate over a 30-year career, including over 3,000 doors of multifamily and more than 700 single-family homes uh, with the assistance of a proprietary software that he wrote himself. He has subdivided land, built homes, constructed self storage uh, but he really prefers to reposition existing multifamily properties. He's also the author of the Hands-Off Investor and Insider's Guide to Investing in Passive Real Estate Syndications and is a frequent public speaker at conferences and events nationwide. Great, uh, well-rounded overview there, but without further ado, Brian, welcome. How are you?
1: I'm great, Devin. Thanks for having me on your show.
0: Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much. So a lot of good stuff to pick apart in there. Um, Being vertically integrated, I mean, that's something we can kind of relate to Doing land and single family, but kind of comes back to the multifamily stuff. So, what, why the preference there? Having having done a lot of things on the real estate menu, why the preference for you know existing multifamily with in place cash flow? What, what why is that your favorite among the among the bunch?
1: Well, great question. You know, I've uh, I I kind of feel like I've done just about everything there is to do in real estate. But uh, you know, I started out uh, in flipping houses and and just buying, fixing, and reselling existing houses. And after the market collapsed in 2008, we were raising a lot of money to uh, do a lot of flips. We were doing a couple hundred, you know, over 100 uh, flips a year. We bought like 100 rental houses and. Uh, you know that we started getting uh really good at raising money, but looking at the opportunity and seeing that you know buying foreclosures had a limited lifespan you know once we bought them all, then there weren 't going to be any more so we started to think about you know what could we do that 's you know scalable and uh, and sustainable and we could do it throughout different market cycles and really build a really large business and uh, we uh, looked at multifamily as the solution to that problem because it was a business that I got into about 20 years ago and, and really found that it was a great business to be in. So that was where we decided to focus our efforts for scaling.
0: Outstanding. What market was that first multifamily project that you got into, in?
1: My first multifamily was, uh, was, what, 20 years ago here in California. And it was a 16-unit yep. property was my first one. Uh, before that all I had done is houses and condos I hadn't even bought a duplex or a fourplex yet by that point but I I got straight into it with with a 16 unit and then you know then I bought an 11 unit and then a 60 unit and then a 54 unit and then a 130 unit and you know so right now the largest property that that's in our portfolio is 539 units
0: 539 what market is that in that is in Atlanta Georgia Gotcha. That is a huge property. Are you guys, so we're going to kind of jump around all over the place here, but we talked about your company being vertically integrated and and owning the management company. I take that, that that's the, the definition there. Are you guys managing that that uh, city in Atlanta, the 500 plus units?
1: We are, yeah. We, uh, we have assets in uh, Arizona, Texas, Georgia, and Florida, and I still have a few things here in, in California that are just leftover personal assets, but uh, in the company uh we we specialize all across the country we We do manage our own multifamily assets. The single families in my personal portfolio i've managed companies for but uh yeah we we self manage uh in in all those states
0: yeah that's great so um th- with this kind of organic growth over time, right starting a single family and transitioning to larger larger assets. At what point did it make sense for you guys to say, "Hey, let's let's be vertically integrated. Let's kind of bring this in house." Was it after a while? Was that did you start out of the gate with that? What did that look like for you guys? It,
1: it took about uh, fifteen or sixteen years <laughs> before we yeah. uh, before we decided it was time. Uh, we, we reached about uh, fifteen hundred units, and we just decided that you know this was the, a good time to to look at at taking management in house and. We did it. We did it differently than some might. You know, we didn't just go in and just wholesale take over all our properties. Instead, what we did is we started the management company up from the ground up, and uh, and every new property we bought went into the management company. And you know, eventually we ended up selling off the properties that were third party managed. We still have one third party managed property left in our portfolio in San Antonio, uh, but uh, everything else that we own now is uh, is self managed.
0: Got it, got it. So it was kind of a phase-in approach where you weren't, uh, you didn't do a hostile takeover of 2,000 doors in, in a weekend or whatever.
1: We didn't, you know, I've, uh, we could have. The, uh, the CEO yep. that I hired to run the management company, or actually he's a, he's a, he joined us as a partner, and you know, it wasn't just a direct hire, but uh, he uh, his claim to fame was when he got uh, hired by one of the largest institutions in the country, uh, he was the president of their management company, and they took over like twenty-five thousand units from third party to in-house in ninety days. <laughs> and, uh, and so he had the skill set to do it. But I'm I'm one of those organic growth kind of guys where I, I like to see things happen slowly and kind of at a measurable pace. So we uh, we took that approach this time.
0: Right, right, got it. That's that's great. Uh, that's incredible. I can't even imagine what kind of a ninety-day run that was. Like a, I couldn't either. <laughs> sounds like a nightmare. That's incredible. Um, so, today with the with the business and you've got the management company. What does the what does the corporate team look like for the for the the private equity firm? And and do you run them as two kind of separate? Silos, or is it really kind of one umbrella? Or how do you treat the the private equity business versus the management company, which are two very different businesses?
1: Oh, two very different businesses. And I'll tell you, property management is a business I never wanted to be in. <laughs> it's right. a, uh, I, I'm right. not good at it, and it's a, it's a thankless job. Uh, but uh, it it was it was time. There were there were some real reasons to do it, and that's why we chose to take that route. But we definitely operate them as two separate businesses. The um, Uh, the management side has its own org chart. So there's a president of that management company. There's a chief operating officer. We have area vice presidents. uh, We have property level staff. There's about 50 or so employees in that company, maybe more by now. Uh, That was my last count. We might be up to 60 or more by now. Uh, Sure. And then on the private equity side, you know, a separate org chart where you know, I'm in charge of the private equity side, and then we've got a chief uh, investment officer, a CFO, a vice president of investor relations, a corporate controller, and, and some admin staff. So uh, they're two, uh, in fact, they're housed in two separate offices, and one's in Southern California and one's in Northern California.
0: <laughs> right, right. So really functioning as two different companies, which makes sense. There's such, such completely different worlds. Um, at, at that point. So is there a deal that we could kind of dial in, maybe a past deal that, uh, uh, you know, y- you've been at the this business for a while, maybe a deal that's gone full cycle uh, for folks listening, maybe that are, you know, that I think some people listening right now might be first first time prospective investors that are kind of new to this whole idea of fractional ownership and a multifamily project. Could you walk us through kind of high level on a, on a full cycle multifamily deal at some point that you guys have gone through?
1: Yeah. In fact, we just cycled uh, out of one about two months ago. It's a relevant example. Uh, it was a property that we bought uh, three years ago in Tampa, Florida, 232 units, eighties built product B class. Uh, we went in and, uh, and, and did a wholesale um, uh, unit upgrade program just throughout the entire property. We uh, upgraded the interiors of the units. Every time somebody moved out, we'd upgrade the interior to new finishes with new appliances, paint, flooring, resurface countertops, uh, brush nickel fixtures, uh, plumbing and lighting, that sort of stuff. Really nice uh, looking renovation package. We did an exterior renovation where we uh, took out a old tennis court and made a resort style grilling area uh, with a putting green and a little creek and a bridge. And, you know, just, you really kind of upgraded the tour path, you know, from uh, the uh, management office to the model unit and, you know, nice new furnishings and decor in the model and and, uh, in the uh, clubhouse so that process uh, the exterior stuff took about a year to complete the interior stuff took about two and a half years to get through all the units just through natural attrition, you know, and turnover as people moved out, there were probably about 15% of the units we never got to. We uh, put the property on the market. I think we bought it for, I think it was 18 million. I think we were in it for like 22 or something by the time we were done, maybe it's 21, something like that. And, uh, we uh, put the property on the market in January of this year and we got offers like the week that COVID became a thing. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, and the offers were great offers. I mean, way beyond our expectations. And, uh, and then, uh, when, when COVID hit, you know, when the buyer that we picked started to get a little nervous and, uh, wasn't sure they were going to be able to execute. And, you know, we never made it to signing a purchase and sale agreement. We had just gotten to the point of picking a buyer and thinking about drafting the agreement. Uh, we, I think we were into the second draft of the PSA when, uh, when they said, hey, we've got a problem here. Uh, the world just changed. So right. we just kind of put the thing on ice and uh, we waited about three months. And then we went back to all the top buyers and, and uh, we said, anybody still interested? And they all raised their hand. Everybody was still interested. Uh, so we go. said, all right, resubmit your best offer. So everybody submitted offers. And as it turns out, uh, you know, a couple uh, guys threw in offers that were a lot lower than where they were before. But the top buyer that we had from previous held pretty much at his price. I think it came down just a very, very, very small amount, like uh, 50 grand or 100,000 or something like that. And we got the property into contract. Uh, we saw, it closed escrow right on schedule. I think the price was like 32 or 33 million. Uh, we ended up uh, our, our investors had invested seven million dollars, or I think it was seven point seven million, and we ended up delivering a 26 percent internal rate of return over that three-year hold, which was an incredible result for the investors.
0: Yeah, that's fantastic. Uh, love it. Love hearing that story, and love hearing some positive stories out of the the COVID year. I think it'll go down as that. You know, I think um, that's a story I've heard from from ourselves and other operators that hey, listen, it was uh, it was kind of a rough patch there, but we sold a couple of deals this year, we bought a few this year, and there were some curveballs in there, but every, it seems like everybody's still transacting, which is good.
1: Yeah, it's good to see that transaction velocity is has held up the way it has. I mean, there was a period there, probably uh, not so much March, but April, May, June was almost a, a standoff. You know, everybody was trying right. to figure out what the other side was going to do. And it was, it was kind of hilarious because at the same time that we were trying to sell our property in Florida, we were trying to buy other properties. So, it's like I get on the phone call with a with a a broker and I'm trying to tell them like, you know, hey, yeah, the world's changed now. There's no more rent growth. Occupancies are going to fall. There's going to be more delinquencies. Uh, The price has to adjust. And I'd hang up the phone. I'd pick up the phone and call the broker selling our property in Florida. It's like, what do you mean they want to come down on their offer? You know, we're still collecting as much as we were collecting before. There's no reason the price should go down. And so it was was kind (laughs) of
0: a, it was a little bit of a weird place to be. (laughs) Yeah, no, that's exactly right. But that's kind of what we've seen. I mean, you guys have definitely a A bigger, more nationwide footprint than we do, but collections and occupancy kind of just humming along. I mean, it's, um, you know, we got the Dow hitting 30,000 today for the, you know, for the first time. It's like kind of bizarro world, but uh, we'll take what we can get, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely, and you're you're 100 right. I mean, we noticed that you know collections held up remarkably well in our portfolio all across the country. Uh, we had a couple of properties that were 70s deals that uh, didn't fare as well. It was interesting, you know, the sure. the newer properties and you know Class A and Class B is held out better than Class C and Class B even better than Class A to an extent. Uh, so there's certainly been some uh, dislocation in the performance of property based upon its location and and it's uh vintage and the resident profile, but overall it, we've done remarkably well. And as a result of that, it hasn't really commanded any uh, market price adjustments or discounts and everybody thought, oh great, here's my chance to go in and scoop up discounted properties. And and really your chance to do that was 2008 and nine. Uh, we yeah. thought this might be another opportunity to do that. It didn't materialize and I don't think it's going to. Uh, I think uh, I think we're gonna hold up okay.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's good commentary. Um, I want to go back to, to your investment example, uh, you know, with the the mid twenties IRR, which is fantastic. And I'm sure your investors were over the moon about that. How do you guys structure your capital stack? Um, if you could just kind of walk somebody through, maybe that's a, that's a a new investor and, and you know, looking to talk to you guys. What does the, the whole capital stack look like? Are there a bunch of different classes on your equity? Are you doing any, you know, mezzanine debt in there or, or, uh, pref equity what, or is it more straightforward? How do you guys structure it?
1: Well, I'm, I'm one of those people that's a little bit concerned about, uh, you know, the future unknowns. And, and the one thing that, uh, helped me survive previous market cycles was, not being over leveraged. and you know when I look right. back to 2008, seven, eight, and nine, and people all around me going into foreclosure and buying up multifamily properties that were in foreclosure, I bought several apartment complexes that were either in receivership or foreclosure. And, you know, in every case, uh, those borrowers were over leveraged and they, you know, they had uh, too much debt, whether it was high uh, interest rate bridge debt or mezzanine debt or who knows what. And the guys that didn't do that survived. And so I feel like to perform for our investors, the first thing we have to do is survive. And if we can survive, we're in a better position to perform, obviously, than if we get ourselves crushed. So I tend to stay away from over-leveraging and, and bringing on too many different complexities to the capital stack. So ours looks really simple. We'll have first position uh, agency debt at 65 to 75% of the purchase price, and the rest of it is common equity from our investors. And, uh, and that's pretty much it. We've, uh, I've done one uh, PREF equity deal where we brought in about 20% of the capital from a PREF equity uh, supplier. Uh, I only did it because I felt that uh, I was really confident we could refinance them out if we needed to. Uh, and it was a small portion of the capital stack and we structured it so that it wouldn't actually take any money from the cash flow. It was really creative structure. Uh, so hmm. we did it and, and maybe I would do that again, but I'm in no real hurry too. We've, we've had plenty of offers for PREF equity and I always, always turn them down.
0: Yeah, that's that's uh, that's great to hear. Even as you guys have grown the company as big as it is, that uh, keeping it simple is a formula that you know continues to work. The formula works,
1: although it stunts your growth. I mean, if I wanted to take on all right. that additional capital, I could probably have six thousand units instead of three thousand units, and you know, I'd probably sure. be in the we'd t- be talking about buying three quarters of a billion in real estate instead of a half a billion. Uh, but uh, I, I just i would rather i would rather grow slowly and organically and safely uh than try to you know it's the tortoise and the hare thing right
0: right right yeah 100 percent. and i'm sure investors can appreciate a simple capital stack that's like hey here's the here's the investment you know there's not a there's not a complicated series of uh of classes and shares to understand it sounds like it's pretty straightforward for folks
1: well, it's uh, it's understandable, but it's also, you know, they don't have to worry about somebody else being ahead of in line, you know, and, and right. so you can, if you have multiple classes of shares, you know, one of the things that I've always felt is that, you know, if I had a preferred equity um, uh, in the stack, then the common equity might be harder to raise. So, uh, granted it's really easy to grab that, you know, two, three, four, five million three, four, $5 million in pref equity, but then the other seven or eight or $10 million that I need to raise becomes more difficult. And I lose two or $3 million worth of investors who chose not to invest because they were nervous about the pref equity being in the way. And you know, my net is zero. I've really gained nothing. So yep. I've just avoided it.
0: Yep. Yeah, yeah. Makes sense. So, uh, Looking into the future here, you know, hopefully 2021 is a little more stable year, but is multifamily still an asset class that you guys want to continue pursuing or are you going out and doing different, uh, you know, self-storage, mobile home, whatever it is on the, on the investment side? What are your, what's your thoughts on that?
1: Well, I'm, I'm in the bin there, done that club. I, I've, I've done yep. self-storage. I've done hospitality. I've done vacant land. I've subdivided. I've built houses. I've kind of done all of that other stuff already. It's out of my system. Uh, I've discovered through the course of doing all these various ventures that our core competency is, is multifamily, value-add multifamily, and we're, we've gotten very good at it. Uh, The senior members of my team uh, combined, we have 100,000 units of multifamily experience. The newest in the business has been at it over 20 years. The longest in the business has been doing it for 40 years. Uh, It's hard to teach old dogs new tricks. And so, you know, we we just decided we'll stay in our lane, Uh, we're good at it, and uh, we're just going to keep doing what we're doing and not get too distracted.
0: Yeah, I love it. I love it. Um, if you're talking to somebody that's wanting to dip their toe in the water as a passive investor, wh- what do you guys say to that person? Um, somebody that's maybe been in the stock market, been in other traditional investment vehicles, and they're exploring real estate, but it can be a little intimidating. First, first, uh, first pass. What do you say to that person that's exploring uh, passive multifamily real estate investment?
1: Well, geez, if they don't have any experience in real estate at all. Uh, and or if they don't have experience in passively investing in real estate, you know, now my first advice to them is go get a copy of my book. I mean, it's, it's not expensive. It's a few bucks. You can get it on Amazon and educate yourself on, uh, on what passive investing really is and what, uh, what to look for in a passive investment. Uh, I wrote this book from the perspective of giving investors a behind-the-scenes look at, uh, what a investment sponsor can do to screw you, uh, what they can do to make you money, uh, what they can do to hide things from you and kind of give away all the trade secrets. And, um, and, and I think people need to know that information because if you want to go into, if you're going to give up six figures of your hard earned life savings, you really need to know what you're getting yourself into. And that will just help save you from making mistakes. So my first piece of advice would be whether you buy the book or not, educate yourself on, uh, on real estate fundamentals, educate yourself on, uh, on passive real estate investments and really understand what you're investing in because the suitability of an investment is probably the most important factor and an investment is only suitable for you if you really understand it.
0: I love it. Education as a first step makes a lot of sense. Um, Brian Burt, thank you very much for jumping on today. I appreciate this brief window into all the things you guys have going on. If somebody wants to connect with with you and your team, what's a good avenue to do that?
1: Uh, Good avenues are to uh, check out our website. It's praxcap.com. It's P-R-A-X-C-A-P.com. Accredited investors can go to investwithpraxis.com and check out our latest offering. Uh, You can find me on Instagram at Investor Brian Burke uh, or on uh, biggerpockets.com answering questions in the
0: forums. Awesome. Awesome. Very good. Well, we'll link to that in the show notes of the podcast here that you're listening on. You can click the link there and reach out to Brian and his team. Thanks so much for jumping on. I I enjoyed, uh, enjoyed chatting with you.
1: Thanks for having me on Devin. All right. Thanks.